Amen. So at this time, we're going to hear the word of the Lord. Uh, this morning, as we continue on in our uh, series in the book of Colossians, which we took a break from last week, but we'll be picking up again this morning. This morning's text is Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 to 23. You can follow along on the screen or in your uh, Bible, or there's an insert in the bulletin as well with it listed there. So would you hear now the word of the Lord from the Apostle Paul, Colossians 2, 16 to 23. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to its regulations? Quote, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that, are, that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Amen. This is the reading of God's word. Do you pray with me again as we um, transition to hearing this word taught? Lord, teach us, open our ears, open our hearts. Help us to understand um, what the Spirit is saying to the church this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, a little bit of a tricky text this morning. Um, maybe some words you're not even familiar with in that text this morning. You may be saying, I have no idea what the Apostle Paul is talking about. Maybe that was something 2,000 years ago that was relevant, but I don't get it. So we're going to try to unpack that a little bit this morning and give some clarity um, but before that, let's just, let's ease our way in. And I want you to think about this morning, if you are in any way superstitious. Anybody got any superstitiousness in you? I think about, I used, when I was in college, I used to watch a show, a popular show, where one of the main characters at one point said, I'm not superstitious, but I'm a little stitious. And I think we all have a little stitious in us if we think about it. Um, I was watching a football game last weekend that was really important to me. And I, I discovered halfway through the beginning of the game when things were going really well, that if I didn't change anything that I was doing, that the game would continue going on pretty well. But if I had to get up and go refill my drink or use the bathroom or change my sitting just slightly, then I started to say, but if I do that, maybe things will start going bad. And that was a little stitious that came out in me. Maybe not superstitious, but a little stitious. And I wonder if, if you have any things like that in your life as well. Just things that you kind of, you know, are kind of nonsense, but you still find yourself doing them because 
you're just a little superstitious. There's these little things that maybe trick you into feeling good about uncertain things or feeling a little better about uncomfortable things. And so I just maybe let your mind go to that place this morning and identify where, where are you uh, superstitious, even in a small way. Um, but also, I, I read this week one of Aesop's fables. And I think this ties in a little bit this morning to the direction I'd like to go in teaching this text. And the name of this fable is called The Donkey and His Shadow. Let me read it. It's short. A traveler had once hired a donkey to carry him to a distant part of the country. The owner of the donkey also went with the traveler, walking beside him to drive the donkey and point out the way. So just to explain, a traveler hires a donkey, but the owner of the donkey is coming with them. So there's two people and a donkey, right? So that's, that's the scenario here. I got a little confused. I want to make sure I was clarified. The road that they were on led across a treeless plain where the sun just beat down fiercely on top of them. So... So intense did the heat become that the traveler at last decided to stop for a rest. And as he found that there was no other shade to be found, because there's no trees anywhere, the traveler sat down underneath the donkey. That's the only shadow he could find. But the heat had affected the owner of the donkey so much as it had the traveler, and even more so because he had been walking alongside the donkey, kind of walking with the, his, his own donkey. So he also wished to rest in the, shed, in the shade cast by the donkey. And they began to quarrel together. And he said that he had hired the donkey, but not the shadow that he had cast. He said, you hired my donkey. You didn't hire the shade. The two soon came to blows. And while they were fighting, the donkey took to its heels. Poof, off he went. That's the end of the fable. The moral of the fable, this is the stated moral of the fable, is in quarreling about the shadow, we often lose the substance. And so interestingly, those two words both show up in our text this morning in Colossians 2, shadow and substance. In quarreling about the shadow, we often lose the substance. The donkey runs away when you quarrel about the shadow. So what is the substance of the kingdom of Jesus? That's what we're going to be looking at in part this morning. But we're also going to be looking at what are the shadows that sometimes we trick ourselves into thinking that's the substance of the kingdom. So substance, meaning the real stuff, the, the weighty, significant part of the kingdom of God. And the shadows, meaning the fleeting stuff that, that may provide shade for a time, but... As the sun moves and as the donkey moves in the, in the fable, aren't the most important part. So if you look at verse 17, this is where it brings the two themes together. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So that's the key part in this text. And what surrounds it is kind of what the Colossian church was experiencing during their time. And again, it's going to be a little bit different than what you and I experience in Salem in 2022. Different context, different time, different continent. Um, but the kingdom of God is the same. The kingdom of Jesus is the same. The substance is the same. Even some of the shadows may differ, but the substance is the same. So what do we hold on to as real 
And what are we to let go of as shadows? That's what Paul gets at. So let's start first with the shadows. These are a shadow of the things to come. That's what verse 17 says. And we get some examples of shadows in this passage. And um, it's important to note here right off the beginning, we talked about superstitions already. Christianity is not a grand religious superstition. Christianity is not a grand spiritual religious superstition. It's not if you do the right things in the right way at the right time, then you'll achieve it or things will go well. Kind of like sitting in the same spot or wearing the same t-shirt so that your sports team wins, right? That's not how Christianity works. It's not even about if I show up to the right building at the right time on the right day of the week and sing all the lyrics right, then I'll be a good Christian. That's not how the kingdom of God works. It's not a superstition. So Paul in Colossians 2 is pointing out that there are shadows of Christianity that are not Christianity itself, that we sometimes trick ourselves into thinking that those shadows will accomplish what Christianity is supposed to be. So what are they? I think he gives us two big categories of shadows here. The first big category, you could call it false teaching or legalism. False teaching or legalism, meaning that if I do these things, these cultural things, then I will be a good Christian. So look at verse 16. Verse 16, first, it talks about, um, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink with regard to festival or a new moon or Sabbath. And again, this may already be where you're like, I don't know what he's talking about with a new moon or Sabbath or festivals or food and drink. And we'll get to that in just a second. Um, But what he's getting at here is that there are things that sneak into the life of the church that can easily become uh, things that you feel like you're supposed to do in order to be a good Christian or to find acceptance in the kingdom of God. So false teachers were already circulating in the Roman Empire during this time. Just for context, the book of Colossians was written about 30 years after Jesus rose from the dead. So about 30 years have passed. Paul, remember remember his famous conversion story on the road to Damascus? He's been a Christian for probably 29 years. And so he's grown to be very mature. um, And he's done a lot of teaching. But also there's been some false teaching that's begun to emerge in the empire. And so people are coming around saying, Yes, you need to believe in Jesus, but also you need to do these other things as well. So that's where the food and drink and festival and new moon stuff comes in. Paul's already said once in Colossians, he said in, in, in verse 8 of chapter 2, he said, let no one take you captive by deceptive philosophy. So he's already kind of pointed out to the Colossian church, hey, there's some weird philosophies out there that are trying to lead you down a certain path. Don't listen to it. Don't let someone take you or lead you astray by it. It's deceptive. It's not real. And in verses 10 to 15, he's given them the true teaching on the fullness of Christ. So if you, if you just glance back to verses 10 to 15, just before this, you know, he talks about how Christ is all and is, and is all. Um, he is the fullness of God. He, he's the one who has, uh, when you were dead in your trespasses and in, in, in your this uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together 
by canceling uh, your trespasses and forgiving you of your sin, canceling the record of debt. This he did by nailing it to the cross. So he gives the big summary of truth in those verses. And that's why the first word of verse 16 is, therefore, because those things are true, therefore, when people come and are talking about these things, don't be judged for it. Don't let anybody judge you for those things. Don't let anyone judge you on the food or drink that you consume. It's important to note here, because when you get into other letters, Paul goes into more detail about food and drink that people eat. Oftentimes in that culture, the food and drink that people would eat, they would buy from markets where that same food or drink would be food that was sacrificed to the worship of different gods or to the worship of idols. And so sometimes that food would be contaminated food religiously. And so there were some teachers coming around saying, hey, the food you're eating or drinking, you shouldn't be doing that if you're a Christian because of where it's come from. And so you can look at it in a couple of different ways here. In one sense, there's some truth to that. But in another real sense, Paul is saying, that's not the real matter here. It's just food. It's just drink. You don't need to be judged for that specifically. And he's going to tell why later, talking about the substance of Christ. So on food and drink, there's that whole conversation. Then he's talking about festivals that you attend or don't attend. These are about religious festivals that the people would go to. um, That Paul is saying, you don't have to go to all these festivals. You also don't have to not go to these festivals. It's a conscience thing. New moon celebrations, these are things that they would do once a month when the full moon would come back around. Again, that's how the Jewish calendar was set up, was by the moon cycle. And so there were some traditions that would go and celebrate and have a festival for the new moon. And Paul is saying, don't let anybody you know, judge you based off of that. If you're worshiping the moon, that's a problem. Or if you're getting into foreign you know, divinities, things that are pushing you away from Christ, that's a problem. But the actual going to the festival itself, he says, don't let anyone pass judgment on that. And then the same for the weekly Sabbath observance or non-observance. He said, don't let someone pass judgment on those things for you. So all these things he's saying, he's like, you need to have some wisdom here. You need to have some understanding. For teachers that are coming in and saying, you have to do this or you don't have to do this. It's not quite that simple is essentially what he's saying. It's not that black and white. There has to be something behind it that is more important. And again, we're going to come to that in just a moment. But skip down to verse 18. He gives some more here on the false teaching. He says, let no one. So first he said, let no one pass judgment on you. Then in verse 18, he says, let no one disqualify you. For what? For insisting on asceticism, the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up with reasons by a sensuous mind. Um, And again, maybe you've heard the word asceticism before. Maybe you've never heard that word before. But essentially what that word is, is it's a deep and extreme humility. Asceticism would mean that you, uh, you beat yourself up so much to avoid being worldly or falling into temptation that some people would like in some, and especially as the, as the years went on, when monasteries became 
uh, big or when the monastic movement came, people would literally whip themselves if they would fall into sin or temptation. Or they would go live in the desert far away from all civilization to remove themselves from all worldly things, from any temptation to food or drink or festival or things. And they would insist on a removed lifestyle or an ascetic lifestyle, a simple lifestyle. And they would even physically harm themselves if they did wrong. And Paul is saying, don't let anyone disqualify you if you're not doing that. Because there's these movements that are starting where people are saying, the true Christians are the ones that do this, that take it so seriously. And the false Christians are the ones that still live in the big cities and are mixing up with other people. Paul is saying, don't let other people disqualify you because of that. The worship of angels, that's, that's not talking about worshiping angels. He's talking about how angels worship God, um, which I don't fully understand that one either. But apparently there was false teaching going around saying, if you really want to be a good follower of Jesus, you need to do what the angels are doing and worship in that way. Which it, that's, that feels like a pretty high calling to me to try to worship like an angel worships. Because um, that's kind of... It's kind of unclear anyway. I've never met an angel, nor do I know how angels are supposed to worship. It just feels a little intimidating to me. And Paul's pointing that out, saying, that's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Apparently, there were people that had insisted on having these visions from God. So I did some reading on this. It was almost like, um, think about the prophets in the Old Testament, like Ezekiel and Isaiah, who had these dreams and had these visions from God. Remember some of those? There were people in the New Testament teaching that if you weren't having those same kind of visions, then you were doing something wrong. So you needed to find a way to have a vision of God so that you could be like Ezekiel and Isaiah and Daniel. And you can see how off base that is too. Paul is saying, guys, this teaching is false. It's not real. You're being puffed up without reason. You're building up your spiritual self in a way that's totally unnecessary. Let no one disqualify you for those things. So that's one big category, the legalism, false teaching. The second big category of shadows is this. Verses 20 to 22, essentially you're talking about specific cultural or society teachings. And this is where you and I can find some relevance, I think. For us, what is it that the world teaches us as absolute, certain, you must follow this in order to live well? That society just like assumes that this is the way that every person should live. Because the church in Colossae had this, and the church in Salem or New England or America or the West has this as well. Verse 20 says this. It says, If you died with Christ to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to its regulations? So he's like, in verse 10 to 15, I said, If you're a Christian, you have died with Christ, and you have been made alive with him through his resurrection. You're no longer alive to the world. You're alive to Jesus. So he's saying, if that's the case, why are you still following the natural rules of the world that are not adhering to Christ or to the resurrection. And so he lists in verse 21 these 
kind of three sayings you see there in quotes. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. And most people assume that in the city of Colossae or in the Roman Empire, that was just a common saying that people would say. Uh, probably like pictured on billboards or on street signs. Like this is like a common phrase that was just known by most of the people not to do certain things. And it just got me thinking, wonder what those kind of things are for us today. What are the things that are on billboards in our city or our towns or things that are on the commercials that we watch on TV that just kind of naturally assume this is what all people today should be like? What are some of the, the sayings or taboos of modern life that we kind of get sucked into as followers of Jesus to say, oh, if I'm not doing that, then I must be, I must be wrong. I think of the phrase, as long as it doesn't hurt someone else, it's fine. That's a common thing that you hear a lot of people say today. You do whatever you want as long as it doesn't hurt somebody else. Or essentially the, the, the phrase, whatever floats your boat, right? If it works for you, that's fine as long as it's not harming or dam damaging somebody else. And I bet if we thought more deeply, I bet you have some better things you're already thinking of now, just things that are naturally assumed that actually are contrary to the teaching of Jesus specifically. A lot of social societal things that if we spent some time, we could really name them uh, together. But what Paul is saying, you've died to those things. You're, you've been made alive with Jesus. And so therefore, these human precepts or teachings, verse 22, he said in verse 23, those have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion, but they actually have no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So the summary statement is, is whether it's legalism whether it's what society is trying to teach you about what is right or wrong or good in life, if it's apart from Christ, if it's adding things onto the gospel, or if it's ignoring the gospel, it may seem like it has some wisdom to it, but actually it's not going to help you to kill the sin that's in your life. You need something deeper. You need something more substantial than just taboo statements or good philosophical phrases, or just good laws. None of those things are bad in and of themselves, but they're just not substantial. They're shadows of the real thing. So let's talk about the substance then. If those things are the shadows, what are the substance? What is the substance? Remember the therefore in verse 16. He says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you. But he looks back to Jesus in verses 10 to 15. He talks about the fullness of Jesus and the emptiness of what the world can offer. The fullness of Jesus is that he is the fullness of God in and of himself. He is the head of all authority. He removes the flesh of sin from us and he raises us to new life with him. He cancels the record that's against us by his cross, and he fully disarms the opposition against us. We've been raised to new life in Jesus. And that's why in verse 17, he says, 
these new moon festivals, the Sabbath festivals, the weekly observance, the food and drink, those things are all shadows. But the substance belongs to Christ. The word substance there is the same word that's used for body. The body belongs to Christ. And so if you think about the body of Christ, who is the body of Christ? The church. You and I are. We're the arms and legs, the elbows, the noses. We are the fullness of Christ that's attached to the head. And who is the head? Jesus, in verse 19, you see that, the, the, at least in my Bible, the H is capitalized. You need to be attached, holding fast to the head from whom the whole body or the whole substance is nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments with the growth that grows from God. You see, the real stuff of the kingdom of Jesus, the real substance of the kingdom of Jesus is first holding fast to Jesus because he is the head. I'll use a Halloween imagery for you. If we're not attached to the head... We're just a headless church. Headless horsemen, right? There's no such thing as a headless horseman Christianity. It's impossible. A headless Christianity is no Christianity at all because Christ is the head. You're just a eanity. How foolish is that? It's just another self-made religion, as Paul said. It's just another set of rules, just another set of philosophies. But with Christ as the head, it's a Christianity. We don't want to be headless horsemen, Christianity. We want to be connected to the head, Christ, which means that then the whole body can grow together. All the ligaments, all the tendons that then work fully together. So the real stuff, the real substance of the kingdom is holding fast to Jesus, growing together with his church. This shows the importance of us being together, not just having rules that we can go back to our little house and follow by ourselves. We must come together to grow together, to move together as a full body. And that's why so much of the New Testament talks about the gifts of the church that we bring together and serve with together. You know, I gave the announcement about the nominating committee and the teams, the things we do as a church. That's not just for structure. It's not just to Make sure we hold fast to our bylaws. That's, we do those things because we all have unique individual gifts that when we're connected to the head, Jesus, we bring them together and we operate as a fully functioning, healthy person. We grow with a growth that is from God. And then lastly, the real substance of the kingdom is dying to the world with Jesus. Look at verse 20. It just reminds us that if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why do you act as if you're still alive to the world? So again, I mean, Halloween week, this is good stuff. We're, we're, we're living dead to the world and alive to Christ. The world is fleeting. And when we live to Christ, we die to the world, which means we'll naturally rub up against some of the, the regulations of the world which means there are times where there's going to be friction, where you say, the world is telling me this, but Jesus, the, the true way, is showing me this. And I'm going to follow him and be obedient to him, even if it means being uncomfortable or even disobedient to the world. 
And that's why Paul says in one place, to live is Christ and to die is gain. The substance of the kingdom is attached to the head, which is Christ, putting aside these other things and living in the fullness of what Jesus has won for us. I'll close with this story. I mentioned the monastics earlier, the people that would go and live out in the desert and um, just really kind of beat themselves down so they could focus fully on Jesus and kind of remove themselves from the world. And um, I think we all can agree that's a little extreme too, that the monastics took it to an extreme level. But there are some things we can learn from that as well. I just want to finish with this story. It's from one of the desert fathers, is what they're called. And it's this one named Abbot Anastasius. I'd never heard of this guy before this week. But I think this story kind of ties a good bow on what we're talking about this morning. Here's the story. I'll read it to you. It says, Abbot Anastasius had once had a book written on very fine parchment, which was, which was worth 18 pence, which was their currency at the time, which it was very expensive, 18 pence. And in the book, it had in it both the Old and the New Testament in full on very fine paper, very good binding and everything. And one time, a brother came to visit him, a friend. I don't think it's a family member. A friend came to visit him, and seeing that the book was there and was worth a lot of money, he took it with him without Anastasius knowing and stole it, essentially. And so the next day, when when Abbot Anastasius went to find the book and to read it, he saw that it was missing, and he realized that his his friend had probably taken off with it. but he decided not to chase after him. He decided just to let him go with it and just let the story run its course um, because he didn't want to add insult to his brother by adding perjury to the theft, as he said. Well, the story goes, the, the friend went into the nearby city to try to sell the book to make some money off of it. And when he went into the, uh, to the store, he was asking for 16 pence, which is a little bit less than what it was actually worth. And the buyer took a look at it and he said, let me see the book and I'm gonna take it to someone who may know better than me how much it's actually worth. And so guess who the buyer took the book to? He took it to Anastasius and said, hey, this person came in with this book and is asking how much is it worth? He he said 16, do you think it's worth 16? And Anastasius obviously recognized it and smiled and said, yeah, it's worth 16 chose not to say at that point that it was his book that was stolen. And so he went back uh, to the guy who had stolen the book, the buyer did, and said, uh, I took it to Anastasius. And he said, it's actually worth that much money. And the guy said, you took it to Anastasius. Did he say anything else? And the buyer said, no, that's all he said. And so at that moment, the guy said, I don't want to sell it anymore. You can, you can have it. Uh, I don't want to take any money from it because he was cut to the heart. He was convicted. So the, the friend went back to Anastasius, confessed, and they ended up living out their days together, um, becoming close friends and learning uh, from one another more. But I think that story kind of helps us to cut to the dividing line here of the substance and the shadows. You know, you may hear that story first and you say, well, the emphasis should be on the Bible, on the holy book, and on, you know, making sure we don't have these, like, these things stolen legally and on the, 
like the specific rules and demands. But that wasn't what Anastasius was concerned about, was it? He was concerned about his neighbor, his brother, and what his heart was like. And he knew that he would learn more about Jesus through how Anastasius responded to the theft than just by running after him and taking the book back. And I think he's right. I think the friend saw Jesus more in the interaction than he did in just the fine, beautiful book. And I was convicted by that. May I live my life, may you live your life with such substance that is connected to Jesus the head, that the legalism, the false teaching, the cultural norms, those things don't seem as important. But abiding with Christ does, remaining in him, being attached to the vine and flowing through his life. Finish with the quote by Tim Keller, which is on the front of your bulletin this morning. He says, all bad things will work out for good. That's comforting. We could end with just with that. But we're not. The second one, truly good things will last forever. That's even better. The substance lasts forever. But the best things are yet to come. Bad things work out for good. Truly good things will last forever. And the best things are yet to come. That's the substance of the kingdom. Something that applies to today, but even more so the things that will last forever. Let me close us in prayer as we finish. Heavenly Father, I, I pray this morning that, um, that the complexity of this, of this text this morning isn't what is remembered, but what is remembered is the just the central point there to remember that the substance belongs to Jesus, that he is the center of the story. That yes, while morality and legal things are important, um, ultimately it comes down to being connected to the head, to Christ himself. That is what will last. He is what will last. And all the, the goodness flows from that first. So may we not, uh, would you teach us to not turn it around uh, to get caught up into the, the false narratives of what religion should or should not be. Let's just, well, may we follow Jesus and be connected to him. May we hold fast to him. So I pray for us that we all would learn to do that together as a church. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.